As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from the weird, wondrous, and ridiculous West Coast. We have a fabulous show for you today. I am talking to Patrick Collison, who is the co-founder of Stripe. A company you may not have heard of, or maybe you have, but you have definitely used. It's the payment plumbing of the internet. It's massive. Its founding story is quite extraordinary, as is Collison, which you will see directly. But before we get there, may I make a special pleading? If you like the show, press pause right now. Well, after I say this, rate it, review it, share it with a friend. Now you can press pause and do that. Thank you. It really does help. And one production note, if it sounds a bit echoey, sorry, the conference rooms at Stripe, which are named after wild animals, if memory serves, are all glass and wood. I think we were in a room called Bison. No soft furnishings in Bison. Stripe boys are uh, very frugal. So anyhow, if the acoustic sounds ever so slightly different, that is why. But now, on to the show. Yo, technology, what is it all about? A very large fraction, maybe most of what we believe is wrong, and that to, to the extent that we remain successful, it'll be because we are good at correcting our mistaken beliefs rather than that we sort of furiously bring to bear our opinionated worldview. Patrick Collison and his brother, John, are quite the story. They're from a tiny village in Ireland, and they came out to Silicon Valley way back in 2009 after Patrick dropped out of MIT to get Stripe off the ground. And what they did was create one of the fastest growing startups in the world. After its last funding round, the company was valued at more than $9 billion. And they pulled it off by creating a way for anyone, from the biggest company in the world to the most modest of upstarts, to drop in a few lines of code to their website and presto, you have opened an online store capable of processing payments. The company is growing like a weed. Patrick, who is all of 29 now, and John, who is 27, are both billionaires. And they're still flatmates. (laughs) When Patrick and I met, he sauntered into the office in a t-shirt, cradling his bike helmet. He might be the most thoughtful, unassuming, uber-rich guy I have ever met. And he is full of fascinating insights. We talk about how the brothers' upbringing in Ireland influenced how they have built the company, the future of money, of the internet itself, and what keeps him up at night. It's a good one. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Patrick. So we're here in Stripe, San Francisco, Mission Bay. I lived here 15 years ago, and there was nothing here before. So whenever I come down here, it's quite amazing to see. How many people are here now? How many uh, work here? In this office, about 600, and then globally about 1,000. Give us the 
the quick version of what Stripe is, what you're doing today. Uh, Stripe is building economic infrastructure for the internet. So the core product or the first product is this idea around kind of just payments processing. That's right. Why was that necessary? You People know, have been buying things on the internet correct, for a while. Why do they need new it's probably an buyer obvious question, things? But yeah, it I, no, no, no. It's, it, it, it's a great question. I think we just became inured to the sort of status quo on the internet and sort of blind to how broken it was. Basically, if you were in the US or Western Europe and if you had a credit card, it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. Now, it was actually kind of bad if you were, you know, when you were trying to get started because you have to like go to the bank and plead your case and all the stuff, right? It was kind of bad if you're on mobile because you're kind of pecking in your credit card number, you know, digit by digit and so on, but like it was okay, yeah? The big issues were first, that the infrastructure we had, that we have had, does not work globally. And so most people in India don't have a credit card, right? Maybe they use Paytm, maybe they use you know, UPI, what have you. Most people in China don't have a credit card. They use you know, uh, Tencent or WeChat for payments. They use uh, Alipay and so on, right? Most people in Japan, obviously, you know, they don't use Visa or MasterCard. They use JCB or something like that, right? And most people in Germany don't have a credit card. They use you know, uh, some kind of bank transfer mechanism or something like that. And so basically, if you set up a website, if you establish a business and you just start accepting credit card payments, Payments, you've immediately effectively blocked most customers in the world from just being able to pay you. And, and you, you look at these businesses, I mean, say a SaaS company or something like this that's just selling some service that in principle could be bought anywhere in the world, and you'll find that the vast majority of their customers are in Australia, the UK, and the US and Canada, because just those are the countries where people have credit cards, where credit card penetration is high. So it's that issue, and it's the difficulties of getting started especially, again, uh, if you're trying to do anything kind of you know, novel or implement some interesting business model that sort of hadn't really existed before. These were kind of the initial problems that kind of we, we came out of the gate uh, uh, sort of to tackle. I guess the thing that we didn't realize that has turned out to be very powerful is that when we started, about 2% of all consumer spending took place on the internet. And you know, that, that's grown now. Maybe it's now about 3%, right? But the vast majority of it is still offline. And so again, kind of coming back... It's only 3%. It's, it's only 3%, right? Uh, it's a bit higher actually in the UK. Uh, the UK is sort of ahead, of ahead of the curve in this. It's, it's actually in the teens. But on a global basis, it's, uh, it's 3%. But again, even in the UK, it's just in the teens. Even though, sort of to your point, you know, when Stripe started, most people that kind of, you know, in, again, in the UK or the US or whatever, had had the experience of buying online but they didn't do that for most things, right? The vast majority of the economy was kind of still you know, unchanged and, and offline. We didn't really realize at the beginning, but sort of we, we came to appreciate over time, is that basically so much of the economy is being reshaped and reimagined and having novel things made possible by the internet as we're kind of figuring out what the sort of internet-enabled digital technological version of it is we're seeing this huge shift of transactions that have taken place over the internet. And so, I mean, just to give a very concrete example, you know, we're now working with the British government. We're now working with gov.uk on sort of a bunch of their digital projects. That's, I think, kind of a nice example of where, well, I mean, of course, e-commerce existed when Stripe started, but it's not as if governments had sort of fully adopted or sort of taken advantage of you know, what the internet makes possible. Again, in sort of building this platform, a lot of what we kind of now see our job as being is to figure out how do we take the possibilities of the internet and of this kind of global economy and kind of make them available to businesses that have not traditionally seen themselves as technology companies, but would now like to take advantage of what the internet makes possible. So for example, when I first moved here back from the UK a year ago, it was around Girl Scout cookie selling time. And I walked around the corner, and there was Girl Scouts with a little table on the street corner, and they were, like, selling, and I didn't have cash, but, of course, they had, like, their little credit card reader, which they could stick into their phone. 
Is that kind of what you're trying to do writ large in terms of whether that's all over the world, just making it easier for people to... And what role does the smartphone play in your vision? So fundamentally, we are serving companies that are trying to do novel things with technology. About half of Stripe's customers tell us they are doing something that was not possible 20 years ago. Just the service or product could not have existed. Like Uber. Or Kickstarter. What would that even look like, you know, in the absence of the internet, right? And that really drives a lot of kind of how they think about their businesses, what they're looking for in Stripe, and that because they're doing something new, they really value sort of flexibility in the APIs and kind of being able to integrate them in sort of novel ways, things people haven't done before, sort of all that, right? And then the second thing is because we're serving businesses that are fundamentally, you know, transacting over the internet, they tend to really care about sort of a, a slightly different set of considerations as compared to most businesses. For example, the promise of the internet is you can kind of operate with much less regard to, to physical borders, right? They want to address you know, a global audience. They're much more likely to care about sort of international expansion and how do they sort of serve customers in India or Indonesia, you know, as effectively as they can serve the customers in Illinois or Indiana, right? And so that's just kind of a different sensibility, I think, that, that technology and internet businesses have. And, you know, kind of neither is right or wrong. It's just kind of a, a difference. So I would say to, to kind of understand Stripe, the core thing is we're serving technology companies, internet-based businesses who are doing something new and to have significant aspirations. Again, the, the typical Stripe user intends to sort of triple or quadruple their employment in the coming couple of years. Now, not all of them will achieve it, of course, right? But, you know, they really tend to have their sights set high. We believe, and this is more kind of from a principled standpoint than it is from a business standpoint. I mean, I think you could make a sane business case for us being otherwise. But just from, a, from the standpoint of just what, the effect we want to have in the world, we would like to sort of build infrastructure that the very best, most successful, most sophisticated companies in the world are using, that Facebook is using, that Twitter is using, right? We'd like to take that infrastructure and make it available in a permissionless, self-serve fashion to two people who are just starting out with an idea. The product that we offer and the service that we provide to, you know, these enormous public companies is the very same service that we you know, make available publicly, and I think that's really important. And so kind of these patterns that we see in the customer base around sort of the extent of their ambition or, or desires to expand globally or the kind of technological sophistication of what they're doing, that's all self-selection. And so the idea is that I could effectively cut and paste the code I need yes. from you, and all of a sudden I can accept payments, like exactly. presto, yes. presto changeo. Ten minutes. We were kind of surprised that it didn't exist before us um, in that... Yeah. I think because it was sort of so tied to a set of companies that were not at heart technology companies, you know, it was kind of there, but it was sort of buried beneath sort of layers of paperwork and approvals and kind of all the rest. And so, again, a lot of what we did sort of initially was to take these capabilities that kind of existed, but to make them available, you know, in this kind of self-serve fashion, and why wouldn't such have, that a non-expert could go and take advantage. Yeah. And why wouldn't have, uh, I don't know, banks, credit card companies, the, the whole financial infrastructure that has a business and get, you know, increasing commerce, this seems like a very obvious thing to have. I mean, perhaps a lot of the uh, big ideas are obvious in retrospect, but why, why did this not exist before? I think because it's very hard to wrap your head around and to make the argument for the magnitude of what doesn't already exist. If we worked at some incumbent institution and I was saying, hey, there's all this stuff that's not getting started because it's actually just like a bit too hard to sign up or something, that doesn't actually sound that logical, right? Because if you're going to start a business, I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to do. It's a multi-year commitment. Is a couple of forms really going to dissuade you that much? I mean, that's very hard to imagine. 
And it turns out to be the case, but it sounds implausible, right? But with Atlas, it was kind of the same thing again, where we're like, well, there are probably a lot of companies not getting started because of the difficulties around incorporation, a different um, you know, problem set. And again, we saw sort of exactly the same thing, where, yep, it turns out that you know, a whole set of these companies, which are now really doing well and sort of growing rapidly and so on, they weren't getting started just because of the friction at sort of that, 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 that initial point of the funnel. So you but, but remove it, that first obstacle and all of a sudden yes. people are actually... Exactly. Because it didn't exist before, because it wasn't happening, again, the case that we would have to make if we were sort of lobbying for this in some other organization is, you know, a whole bunch of important companies are not getting started because the incorporation paperwork is too challenging. You know, it's not that complicated. You know, a smart person can figure it out. And so again, I think I think it would sound implausible. Because it's not happening, I can't, I mean, I, I can make up some numbers like, well, I think, you know, there's billions of dollars of companies not getting started, but I think it would ring hollow. And you make money how by, is it, you charge 2.9%? That's right. So, so we really care about sort of just business model alignment um, between the customers we serve and kind of Stripe's interests. Some of the challenges we're seeing in the tech industry today, to some degree, stem from a misalignment between the interests of the users and the interests of the business model, where for, you know, for some of the services we use, those can be misaligned because the people paying the money are not the people who are kind of predominantly using the service, right? What do you mean? If you just take advertising-based business models as a general matter, the users of the service have one set of interests. You know, they want to be informed or be entertained or you know, whatever reason you're going to the place that has the ads, right? And then the advertisers have a whole different set of interests. And you know, as a general matter, it's it's not terribly misaligned, right? And the, the advertisers are trying to have somewhat compelling ads to convince you to buy things, whatever, right? And the customers want engaging content or, or whatever it is. But it's two different constituencies, again, especially as businesses get really good at optimizing, some kind of weird effects can arise. And so from our standpoint, we really care about the fact that sort of we have a single type of customer. It is the business built on Stripe. Their interest, in you know, essentially every case, uh, is to grow their revenue uh, to be as, you know, as high as possible and to maximize their potential. And so we think that the thing that kind of just aligns us most strongly is for us to charge a transaction-based fee so that the only way in which we can make money is if their revenue increases. That then leads us to think about, well, what could we possibly do that could grow their revenue, right? We're like, how do we help them expand to these markets or to implement these new business models or to reduce their fraud or kind of whatever the case might be? It causes, you know, the, the thousand people at Stripe to sort of, you know, be thinking in the shower about like, how can I in a generalized way make all these businesses better off, which I think is just kind of a, a healthy alignment. Why Stripe? Why the, what's the name? It was basically arbitrarily kind of quasi Totally arbitrary. Yes. I wish I could say, well, it's some, you know, Yeah, there's got to be some, like, really cool right, right. Yeah. story. No, I, th- I think there's all this kind of narrative uh, sort of reauthorship and sculpting <laughs> that kind of goes on post hoc. Maybe if we were uh, more, I don't know, um, skills as raconteurs were more honed, uh, I'd be able to tell you, you know, the, the series of events that led to it. But we, we were sort of just going through a whole bunch of words that seemed like nice words. And, you know, Stripe is a very nice word. Was there an alternative? Was there like a 1A, 1B I would be embarrassed to disclose, but there was. Oh, come on. Well, we were originally called slash dev slash payments. Oh, that's catchy. I thought so. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did not last long in my initial marketing job, but it was like a reference to this kind of weird part of Linux, which you know, we thought was... The slash fun. dev name. Yeah, so basically right. kind of device drivers or devices in Linux are kind of represented under the slash dev hierarchy. It's kind of a standardized interface. Right. Did you really consider that making that the name of your company. We operated as slash dev slash payments for, for about a year. Two, yeah. like, so you would go, yeah, I know, I'm and now you're CEO thinking, like, how did this company <laughs> possibly survive, uh, you know, if, if bad judgment is so, you know, deeply infused into the core DNA? Well, I think Stripe's probably a good choice. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, 
is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's the name of the village you grew up in? For most of my childhood, we were living about a mile outside Drummondier, County Tipperary. How many people live there? In the village itself, maybe. I don't know, 50 to 100. Yeah, so growing up in a place like that, does that color your the way you approach what you're trying to do here absolutely for sure we believe at stripe really strongly in two things so the first is just that improvement and betterment is possible especially these days in the u.s people are a bit jaded in fact i just saw sort of opinion poll data showing that 16 percent of americans think that the world is getting better right? 16 16 one six and growing up in ireland having a sort of visceral sense for the lifestyle that my parents lived when they were growing up, you know, which was you know, by no means dire, but sort of they very much grew up sort of in the midst of you know, rural electrification. You know, the Getting sort of, power was a thing. Exactly. Yeah. And the transition sort of in Ireland from very predominantly sort of agrarian economy to you know, one based initially sort of on manufacturing and sort of um, uh, industrial exports and so on, now increasing to a services economy and so on. And then, of course, our parents, uh, so, excuse me, their parents who you know, lived through a civil war and, you know, and so in Ireland, you could not grow up, at least kind of during my, the period of my childhood, without sort of a very clear, visceral sense for the fact that, like, the world's getting better. There was a lot to dislike about the past, right? Because I think when, when, that kind of, when it recedes too far from me, you know, we can kind of become a bit rosy-eyed about it and, you know, all the rest. And, like, of course, some things were nice back then. But, like, you know, for the most part, a lot sucked. Life was hard. You know, for the people who lived through that, they are under no delusions about the degree of, you know, improvement that had occurred. Then I think the second one is an appreciation for an outward-looking kind of disposition, the notion that it is generally much less productive to try to go it alone. The knee in kind of Ireland's development was in 1973 when Ireland joined the EU. That was what kind of helped kick things into high gear. And then, you know, through the 80s, 90s, Ireland sort of made this really enormous progress. But that was only possible because of... Sort of, you know, it wasn't like Ireland suddenly figured out how to innovate in all these fabulous ways. Is we figured out how to kind of participate in and to share in this sort of collective global innovation and improvement and creation and, and advancement that was occurring. For, for us, kind of looking back to those sort of retrograde days when we're far more closed, had far less, you know, influence from other countries, a far more homogeneous place. It was very clear that that was that that was a worse place. And so in Stripe, we've always been 
pro-global opportunity, pro-globalization, pro-enabling the same opportunity for people in Peru and in Sri Lanka and in Bangladesh and so on as exists for the people in the US and the UK and in Ireland and so forth. And that applies both on the kind of business side in terms of just the, the ability to establish a business in these places, the ability to operate a business and to get to you know, proper scale, and then on the kind of on the buyer side, right? Uh, you know that that one kind of sounds a bit more prosaic, but if it's not possible for people in these countries to transact, well, then they're definitely going to be left behind by Western businesses. When we sometimes sort of uh, look askance at uh, the fact that Western companies don't tend to you know take some of these developing markets as seriously as they should, I think a lot of that is actually driven by just kind of underlying infrastructural deficiencies. Our uh, chief business officer Billy Alvarado, he he grew up in Honduras. You know, obviously there's a lot that's different about the kind of the Honduras story, but I think also sort of a lot that's the same in the sense for the small country, the same appreciation for the fact that it's a big world, and if you can't figure out how to sort of effectively integrate into it and kind of take advantage of what it makes possible, you're not going to go very far. Well, it's interesting that perspective, because especially here in Silicon Valley, which is a bubble within a bubble within a bubble, it feels like a lot of the problems that have come up recently derive from a, a pretty insular view, who is making the products and who they are built to serve, and then they're put out into the wider world, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, there's actually all these other ways we hadn't even thought about or conceived of that could be used in a bad way or f- offend people, or et cetera. I mean, I is that something you try to kind of, that you have in mind when you're trying to build yeah. a company that is actually going around the world? Yes. I mean, I think that maybe another thing that sort of we took away from Ireland, Ireland has no delusions of grandeur. You know, a lot of different places have sort of some national myth or sort of mythos about how they are the best. That is the American myth. Yeah, but, but, but it's not only the American myth, right? Um, all these different kind of yeah. versions of, you know, manifest destiny and yeah, you know, empire and you know, yes. God knows what else, right? Ireland doesn't have much of that. I think that's a good thing. It can, of course, go too far and you get the kind of tall poppy syndrome and whatever, but like, I, I generally think it's good. For Stripe, and to be clear, this is, I don't deserve the credit here. I mean, this I think is actually quite universally present across the company. We're acutely aware of the innumerable ways in which we're deficient and screwing things up and haven't found the answers yet and aren't quite giving what our customers want and may have the potential to do something great but are sort of falling short in these 17 ways, especially once any part of it starts to work, right? I mean, people generally don't have, in a startup, they don't have sort of um, any, you know, delusions of genius um, in the beginning. They haven't gotten any traction, whatever. But I think for the companies that sort of do get a bit of traction, then it's very easy to think that, well, everything you're doing is good. You know, maybe you're doing kind of 17 different things, maybe two of them worked, but then it's easy to kind of over-attribute and over-generalize and be like, well, the other 15 must be good too. I think kind of this attitude in the culture has helped us avoid some of those missteps. But I mean, uh, I'm paranoid, I'm terrified that that sort of, you know, on any day we could get a bit ahead of ourselves become a bit too confident in our own judgment or in sort of knowing better than our customers and just the world around us about what we should do or what our effects are. And I really think it's kind of an ongoing exercise in sort of restraint to really try to yeah. avoid that being the case because that that's the natural institutional tendency. Institutions think they're pretty good at what they do. And uh, here especially, there's a, the whole hero creation. T- t- totally, totally, right. I don't think out of any malevolence, but we must recognize that a very large fraction, maybe most of what we believe is wrong, and that to, to the extent that we remain successful, it'll be because we are good at correcting our mistaken beliefs. 
rather than that we sort of furiously bring to bear our opinionated worldview. And so, say four years ago, how many people worked here at Stripe? Ish, maybe um, 40 people. And now you have a thousand. How do you do that? Just in terms of growing a business that quickly and because obviously people are, you know, your most important resource. How do you figure, how do you keep that all together and build a culture and not have it all go sideways? Well, so I think two things have have really helped us. I'm actually going to say three. Um, The first is we've just been very fortunate in who we've hired and who has chosen to join Stripe and the people who have shaped the culture. There's always kind of back to this kind of um, narrative point. There's always a tendency, I think, to over-attribute success or failure um, uh, to, to, to the leadership. You know, a lot of responsibility and, and accountability sort of correctly rests on our shoulders, but to the extent that you know, things have worked to date, that's because of the you know, cumulative effort now of a thousand people. And you know, that can go better or worse, right? And I think there's a counterfactual stripe you could imagine where just we weren't quite as fortunate in the set of people who joined and sort of their sensibilities and personalities and everything, and just, you know, we'd be sitting here today and maybe having a, a very different conversation. I think it's just important to recognize that good luck. The second one is we quite deliberately tried to not grow headcount that quickly. You know, there's obviously a a sort of compelling recognition here of success that hyperscaling represents. Uh, And, you know, we look up to the businesses that have had this kind of really explosive growth. I think it's very hard to... 30 um, to 1,000 seems pretty explosive to me. Well, we always tried to cap it at about 60% a year. We didn't always succeed. 1.6 1.6 to the 4 times 30 does not get you uh, to 1,000. But um, I was just doing that um, same right, math. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but we really tried to keep a lid on it. We're lucky to have companies around us that grew even faster than we turned out to grow, and it's in some cases, you know, quite substantially so. And I think there's a kind of fragility that comes with, you know, just, just really rapid expansion. And we sort of did everything we could to sort of try to rein it in. And was that 60 percent? Was that was that a random plucked out of the air? Was that actually? It was based on sort of looking at other companies around us and the rates at which they'd grown and sort of what felt sustainable and and kind of durable to us. Uh, so anyway, there, there was just that effort to kind of, you know, keep a, a rein on things. And then the third one is we've just been lucky in the the leaders who've joined and, and their experience and maturity and the ways in which they helped us kind of see around corners and I think avoid a lot of the mistakes that we could easily otherwise have kind of stepped into. And, you know, so our general counsel with this kind of very experienced sort of long time lawyer from from Microsoft. He joined as, I think, our 10th employee or something like that, right? And so, you know, he was right there from the beginning. Our chief business officer joined, I think, as our fifth employee. He'd started a number of companies. He'd worked at Apple. Uh, He'd worked at a bank. And so, again, you know, he had a wife and kids. And so, you know, you see some of these companies and it sort of gets a 30 people and, you know, everyone's under 25, right? And whereas it was just, I think, for us, kind of quite, quite different from the beginning. Our COO had sort of run very large fraction of Google's entire sales org uh, and then ran the self-driving car. And so again, she just had a lot of sort of management and leadership experience uh, from from Google and so on, right? And then, you know, this kind of continues up to today where um, our our, just hired uh, uh, head of product and engineering um, uh, is a sort of decade-long Google veteran having led sort of a whole bunch of different sort of major initiatives and projects there. Um, and you know, I think we're, again, just very fortunate to, to kind of have that experience. And so, you know, the, of course, the, the sort of classic thing in Silicon Valley is a startup is kind of predicated on a rejection of the status quo and a rejection of sort of received knowledge and, you know, the kind of adamant bang the table insistence that everyone's wrong, you know the better way to do it, and like, you know, by God, you are going to sort of impose your will on the world. 
And I think you, you, of course, need to have some aspect of that in sort of some direction, because otherwise, you know, there's, there's no company. It needs to be sort of counter to the status quo in, in some way. But I think there's kind of a very easy sort of cognitive trap that lies, you know, down that road, which is you reject too much, right? And you're like, well, you know, because nobody knows or the world is wrong structurally in how it approaches such and such a problem, the world is also wrong in how it approaches management. That's a very easy thing to kind of do subconsciously. And I mean, that that is a gigantic pit. And if you look down, there's a lot of, I think, companies that could have been very successful that are sort of stuck in it. So does that keep you up at night, this idea that you actually could just take a wrong turn and slam into a wall? Yes, in the sense that I think that most companies that have ever, got, that have ever gotten to Stripe stage have not lived up to their aspirations. Generally speaking, they haven't hit a wall. I mean, sometimes something you know really dramatic happens, whatever, but you know, that, that's not the common case. The common case is the company gets a bit complacent, gets a bit ossified, it loses its hunger, its determination, makes a few bad key strategic decisions, and it ends up sort of being um, this ongoing placid existence, not really going anywhere, but sort of far short of what people really hoped at some point that it would be able to achieve. And avoiding that keeps me up at night. You know, I think that- The kind of mediocre middle. Yeah, as a pure statistical matter, that's what most. That's the default outcome. And just to give kind of a very concrete example of this, in the UK, we have tremendous admiration for what uh, Monzo is doing, the new banking service. We're an investor in their in their most recent round. There's been very little innovation in consumer banking in the US over the last decade. Yeah. And that's largely because of the, again, well-intentioned rules we put in place post the last you know, financial crisis. Look, I mean, we haven't had another financial crisis. I think there's you know, a lot to be said for a, a lot of those rules and a lot of that thinking. But again, it just it, it happens to have had evidently this kind of second order effect where you know the innovative banking solutions are being developed in other countries and not, not in the US. And so I think just kind of for, for policymakers and, and kind of for us collectively as a society, how we navigate this is going to be sort of an increasingly interesting question. How long have you been out here now? I've been in the US since 2006 or thereabouts. So I, I came out here for college. For MIT, That's right. yeah. and then you dropped out. We, we started writing the code for Stripe in late 09, and then we started working on it full-time in summer of 2010. So when did you arrive here on the West Coast? West Coast, I guess it was summer of 2010. Liam Casey of mm. PCH, was he, he was your first investor, no? Yes, because, of course, you know, he's, he's based in China. China's actually been kind of always high on our mind in terms of you can barely read your Twitter feed without seeing some little video of, you know, something getting built in China in, you know, 24 hours that would take us, you know, two and a half decades yes. and 17 billion dollars. I saw one recently of a railroad that There was, you go, exactly. Yes. Right, right, right. And so Liam has been kind of uh, beating this drum for, for literally decades at this point. We partnered with Alipay probably at this point four years ago, and then we had support for WeChat payments uh, back last summer. And WeChat payments is like, I think that's huge, but I'm not sure if that is huge. It is totally huge. It is absolutely huge. Because WeChat uh, you, is like the, the app absolutely, China, right? Absolutely, yep. It is the, the kind of Facebook and Twitter combined. If you go to China today, you'll have to work to find people carrying a wallet. Not just using their wallet, but people who are carrying their wallet. For literally everything, you can now use Alipay or, or, or WeChat payments. I saw homeless people with QR codes. Really? So the phone kind of has replaced the wallet there. And, and it's not only in China. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of rapidly happening in sort of East Africa. It's, it's on course for happening in India. And actually, the government has been sort of quite sophisticated and progressive there with this, uh, this new payment standard called uh, UPI, a standardized interbank payments network. And so in many ways, it's kind of the US and Europe, which have sort of this first mover disadvantage. We have sort of incumbent technology that sort of, you know, sort of works, right? I mean, it's not terrible. And so the kind of, you know, appetite and 
the margin of improvement is actually kind of smaller because we have a system that kind of mostly works. Go to Kenya and they're, uh, and again, other, other parts of East Africa, you know, Tanzania, same thing. And their kind of mobile payments ecosystem is actually in many ways much more sophisticated. But, you know, they're also sort of, there's a much larger leap from cash yeah. and all the associated issues and unreliability and so on because they didn't have kind of a, a well-built out, you know, credit card or interbank transfer network. My previous job, I covered natural resources, so I spent a lot of time in Africa. And I had this one revelatory experience in Sierra Leone where I needed cash because everything is paid for in cash, everything, everything. And I spent half a day trying to find, one, a cash machine that worked, and two, a cash machine that had enough money that I could cover, you know, like a week of expenses. And I had to go to, I don't know, half a dozen cash machines. Half of them worked, half of them didn't. We got a card eaten, and it was just that constraint around just I want to get money to spend yes. was incredibly difficult. Totally. I think the phenomenon kind of more broadly is sort of very interesting of kind of this again kind of first mover disadvantage where the sort of general pattern is I think twofold where a kind of a set of incumbents develop who have a very strong vested interest in the sort of ongoing persistence and survival of you know their particular instantiation of the model and then secondly some degree of even maybe inadvertent kind of regulatory capture or just kind of regulatory kind of ossification where we kind of standardize what's currently happening in order to kind of make it safe and to provide adequate consumer protection. I mean, all these legitimate and, you know, very obviously well-intentioned and, and, and kind of defensible things. But sort of an inadvertent side effect uh, of the latter, and I guess a non-inadvertent, a vertent side effect of the former, uh, <laughs> is that it just becomes harder for some of these new models to develop and to take root, right? And so, I mean, for example, we were just discussing um, Jump Bikes, this new e-bike company, right? And the U.S. is, of course, replete with complicated transit laws and limits, and we've done a lot to work on transit safety and, and have effective standards and all the rest, right? In many other parts of the world, it's far more of a free-for-all, right? And so you can launch your dockless e-bike service, you know, with not a whole lot of consideration for, you know, the, the same kind of thicket of hoops that you have to get yourself through. I think this is a legitimately tough issue because the answer is obviously not to say, well, screw it, you know, this, the accumulation of, of rules and regulations. They serve a very important and societally valuable purpose. But I think there is just like a tough question for us of like, well... How do we make sure that the sort of unintended second-order consequences in terms of limiting the advent of some of these models aren't so large that we're kind of forcing all the innovation to happen somewhere else? Do you and your brother still live together? Yep. I've been to a few um, events, <laughs> tech events, uh -huh. and it's um, quite extraordinary how much money is sloshing around this city, but you're not... Yeah, no, I mean, we're not really on that circuit. Yeah, I mean, you cycle to work, although mm -hmm. you didn't bring your glowing helmet today. No, I neglected to bring the glowing helmet, um, but Silicon Valley can be a funny place in that regard. And I mean, of course, the sort of ostentatious extremes are those that, you know, garner the most attention. Although, you know, I'll say that there is a large, less glamorous or sort of story-worthy and kind of picturesque middle the that I picturesque think. picturesque middle. Less picturesque. Oh, the less yeah, picturesque yeah, yeah. middle. Right. <laughs> that, um, and just a, a lot of people who, you know, very candidly, I have you know, great respect and admiration for, and that, you know, they've had these illustrious careers and achieved all these, you know, great things. And if my kids grew up to be like them, I would think, man, you know, I've done a good job. And honestly, I find that, um, you know, I don't know, get overly you know, misty-eyed here, but... Uh, you can get misty-eyed if you want. So you're in, the safe, you're in a safe place. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, the, the, there's... Most of the narrative that I read about Silicon Valley does not 
accurately represent my experience of it. That's in, not to say in what way. The median person that I interact with in Silicon Valley is smart, hardworking, kind of puritanical, and they kind of feel a, some degree of guilt if they're not uh, doing something that they feel is meaningful and kind of really applying themselves and work, kind of working hard towards it. They have a reasonable story as to how what they're doing is valuable and important. We may not see it exactly the same way, but you know it's generally plausible and, and, and you know, something you'd kind of wish them the best in doing. And they're living and fighting their struggle. And it's usually not a glamorous one. <laughs> and of course, you know, that that's a much less compelling story to write about than, you know, again, what happens at the tales. And you know, I'm not saying that the tales don't exist or don't happen. You know, in, in any of these ecosystems, you know, crazy shit occurs. But and I don't think again anyone is this outcome on net is not deliberate, but the overall take that I read, you know, if I were reading this coming from afar growing up in Ireland, my view of the place would be very different to to what it is that I, in fact, actually experience here. And it's funny, I was talking to, um, to a friend recently, uh, Mathilde Collin. Uh, she's the founder of a, a company called Front, which is this you know, wonderfully impressive group email company. They just raised a, a major round from Sequoia. And you know, she was kind of making the same point. Uh, she was saying that, I mean, she's been here in Silicon Valley for four years. She feels that if she'd been reading in France, the overall take or that, watching Silicon Valley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. That it just it represents a very kind of different experience to what now she has lived here for four years. But, you know, look, I mean, I don't think Silicon Valley is particularly unique here. I mean, I think that probably applies to most industries. Like for most industries uh, or most things, you know, uh, people in politics talk about how D.C. is not like House of Cards. It's like Veep. In Washington, it's mostly, you know, wonks and policymakers trying to do a good job. And yeah, like weird shit happens, but that's the tale. Going back to Stripe five years from now, 10 years from now. Do you think it's the kind of the end of the wallet, the end of cash? How do you see this developing, especially with, I think there's now 3 billion smartphones. I mean, the, the, the end of cash, you know, that'll, that'll probably happen, but I actually think that's the less interesting change. The, the change that I think will be kind of more significant is an increasingly globally connected economy, a significant increase in the number of technology companies or businesses started that can go and take advantage of its prospects. There's no limit on our collective rate of progress, right? And kind of coming back to this, you know, Irish point and sort of the the changes, say that you know, my parents and their parents would have seen. That was an incredible transformation, right, over the course of you know, 50 to 100 years. It would have been very difficult, I think, for somebody, say, in 1900, to try to estimate or predict how much progress we could have made by 1950 or by the year 2000. And I think it's kind of hard for us, kind of sitting here in 2018, to appreciate, you know, the degree of kind of just potential variation in terms of how much progress we make in the next 20 or 40 years. And of course, the narrative today is like, well, there's ever accelerating disruption and, you know, things are being ever more radically changed and jobs are being automated away and all this stuff. And that's not what you see in the data. Productivity growth in the economy has been relatively stagnant. Wages are rising. Manufacturing jobs are increasing. The rate of new firm creation is falling. The fraction of Americans working for young firms is declining. The fraction of industry profits being captured by sort of the industry incumbents is increasing. And so kind of no, no one of these indicators is kind of definitive, but you know, when you look at kind of the aggregate picture, it actually looks much more like a kind of stagnating economy than one that's kind of in the throes of this really rapid acceleration. And so the, the, the thing I think a lot about, and that sort of I think may do your question in this future escaping kind of you know, be the kind of fulcrum issue for the kind of coming decades is how much can we influence and kind of how much can we enable the kinds of progress that 
hopefully will happen over the coming, you know, decades and centuries, but how can we enable it to happen sooner and faster, right? You know, whatever's going to happen in the next 50 years, what can we do to make it possible in the next 20? And, you know, I, I think the sort of impact on the quality of life on a global basis to kind of bringing that forward is you know, really immense uh, in that we'd be living very different lives um, if everything that happened between 1900 and 2000, if we'd wait another century for it, right? And people think that I think it's kind of like this cosmological kind of fixed rate that we're on some conveyor belt of progress, and we're just not. It's, I think, much more sensitive to and determined by kind of how we as a society enable it or don't. Hopefully Stripe can play kind of a very small part in that. What was your worst day at work? Early on, um, this has been the first you know, two months of starting Stripe, we had a, this, this kind of server outage for several hours because of a, a network failure at one of the data centers we used. And so there kind of wasn't anything we could do about it. We were just there necessarily just kind of waiting for them to, to go correct it. And so, you know, felt very disempowered and frustrated, right? It's like six hours of sort of, uh, you know, on the one hand, sort of frantically wishing it could be fixed, but on the other hand, being kind of completely unable to do anything to influence that. That was quite unpleasant. And I very kind of viscerally remember the, the sort of pain of that. But the thing that really made it, I think, the, um, one of the worst days is I then realized that uh, at the end of it, that nobody complained. Um, <laughs> uh, that so I'd, perhaps you weren't that vital yet. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so it was kind of the one-two. And so I, I'd been up like, uh, I'd been woken by this, the this pager system at you know, 3 a.m. And so it was you know, noon at this point. And so I remember cycling very dejectedly back home to... Uh, to try to finish some sleep. That's tough. That's tough. <laughs> um, and also, you are, you're a pilot? Yeah, John and I, when we were teenagers, uh, we started learning to fly, uh, fly small planes. Do you still? My, my dad's a pilot. Um, oh, really? He flew, he flew for United, and now he does um, private, he flies around famous people oh. in, in uh, Hawker. That's cool. Yeah, no, yeah. We're, we're, um, we're much less serious, but um, yeah, no, we, um, we were in Vancouver for a summer back when. I think maybe I was 19 and John was 17, and you know we, um, I think we'd both had the idea for a while that just learning to fly seemed cool. And so all of our summer earnings from that summer went towards uh, lessons at Boundary Bay Airport. And so we uh, take the bus an hour down to, to Boundary Bay, take your lesson, go back up, and uh, get into work in time. What were you working as? I was working at a company called uh, Live Current Media, uh, which was a, just a technology company in downtown Vancouver. So do you still fly? Yeah. Yeah, not, not, not as much as I would, not nearly as much as I would like, um, but uh, still still get to go out on an occasion. And actually, it's been fun where it's, um, it's now become a, a sort of, well, there's a, a bunch of other people at Stripe who are pilots. And I think those people have sort of uh, encouraged others to, to fly as well. And so, I mean, I, I really recommend for, I don't know if you've done this, but for everyone, like, go take one lesson. I have not. You should do it. And I'm one of four kids, and our dad's been the pilot as long as I can remember, and none of us have tried it for whatever reason. Ah, well, um, I, I think... Um, why, why do you recommend it? It's a different kind of experience. It's a different perspective on the world. You get sort of an appreciation for just the, the geography that's difficult to get in some other ways in the sense that on the ground you get one perspective. You know, at 30,000 feet it's kind of hard to see much at all. Yeah. But again, at 3,000 feet you start to just appreciate the place that you're in, right? And, you know, for example, I've become much more interested in meteorology uh, of the Bay Area, I think, in large part as a result of flying around it and watching it and seeing, oh, this reservoir is much lower than it used to be and, right. and stuff like that. So I think that's interesting. And then I think it's just an interesting form of kind of, of self-reliance, right? Um, and that it's kind of, it's a kind of technical skill, but where the, you know, the consequences of, of screwing it up are, you know, 
material. Pretty, pretty stark. Um, and so, <laughs> material, they are yeah, material. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and so just the exercise of sort of really getting good enough that you're sort of that you're comfortable with that is just, it's, it's an interesting exercise that you kind of don't get to experience in that many other ways. Yeah. And that is it. Another episode done. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Patrick for taking the time to sit down and share those experiences and thoughts and whatnot. There's obviously a lot to chew on there. And for you, dear listeners, please, as I said at the top, rate, review, share, spread the word. Let's go global. You can find me online, as always, at thetimes.co.uk in the newspaper, The Sunday Times, on Twitter, at Danny Fortson, and email danny.fort for tea time, S-O-N for November, at sunday-times.co.uk. Until next week, have a good one. Bye-bye. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.